So how's everybody this morning? Hey, Alan uh, guaranteed me that sunrise service next week is going to be a balmy 63 degrees at 7 in the morning. Or at least on its way there. <laughs> Somewhere along that path. Hey, this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 19. Today, being Palm Sunday, is a day that the Scriptures talked about for thousands of years. In fact, in Psalm 118, and maybe you remember the song, we've sang it together ourselves, this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day. This day, today, is that day. Was the day that Abraham talked about way back in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, he was on his way up to the top of Mount Moriah. And as he was headed up to the top of Mount Moriah, his son had upon his back the wood for the sacrifice that they were about to offer. And his son said, Father, I see that we have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Genesis 22, Scripture tells us that Abraham prophesied and said that God will provide himself the lamb. And from that moment, really from Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, man was looking forward to the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. So throughout the Old Testament, the question over and over and over again is asked, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Looking forward. Then there came this year, this time, this period when people were looking around and saying, actually writing and talking about the fact that Messiah must come soon. He's got to come soon. And there was this fella about that time. He wore camel skins. He ran around eating locusts and honey. Is that vegan? Is locusts in a vegetable, huh? But it eats vegetables. Therefore, a cow also could be a vegetable. I didn't even know it. I'm on a vegan diet. I didn't know. He ate locusts and honey. That was his meal. He put it together. And then one day he's going around and he's calling. The people are coming to him. They're coming because, listen guys, for 400 years, God had not spoken a word to his people. That's a long time. 400 years of silence. And then this guy shows up just like one of the Old Testament prophets. And he begins to say, repent. For what? The day of the Lord has come. The day was near today. The day that the Lord has made. And so he, he began to shout. People began to come. He began to baptize them. Why? He, he'd baptize them in water saying, listen, get rid of the old. Step away from the old life. Step into the new. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming. My job is to prepare your heart to receive what Messiah has to give. But one day, in particular, John did something different. He stopped what he was doing and he said to the people, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As he proclaimed to whoever would hear that Jesus Christ was indeed 
the Lamb of God. That perfect sacrifice that Abraham saw way back in Genesis 22. And there he is, standing in front of them. But you remember, as Jesus went through and he was doing the works that he did, he was, he was healing the lame, he was giving the blind sight, the, the lame were walking, the lepers were cleansed, all these things that Messiah was foretold to do in the Old Testament. Yet you remember how every time he did it and people wanted to proclaim him, he said, don't say nothing. You remember how he did that? Don't tell anyone. Shh. Why? It's not the day yet. It's not the day. Today is the day. In Luke chapter 19, we see the day. The Bible tells us that Jesus, way back in Luke chapter 9, began to set his eyes toward Jerusalem. Did he know what was waiting for him in Jerusalem? Sure, all the disciples knew, right? The disciples would say, Lord, if we go back, they're going to kill you. The Lord said that it was appointed unto him, didn't he? He told his disciples that he would die. That he would be in the ground three days and he would rise again. But they didn't hear any of it. They were shaking their head, holding their fingers over their ears. Ah, I can't hear you what you're saying. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. And so Jesus began to set his eyes toward Jerusalem. And, and this particular day arrived. We call it Palm Sunday. The particular day, the day that the Lord had made, the exact perfect moment for Jesus to come. And we can read about it in Luke chapter 19. So as we take a look, let's check out what the, what the word has for us this morning. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, it says, Now when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. All the time, when you read this phrase in the scriptures, you will read going up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter where you're at. You and I, what we say, if we're going north, we're going up. But for them, Jerusalem was up no matter what direction it was from where they were. Why? Because Jerusalem is a city on top of a hill. And you have to go up to get to Jerusalem. So he's headed to go up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village opposite you and you will enter and find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you what you are doing or why you are loosing it, thus you will say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. It's interesting. As they're coming forward, really the disciples have no idea what's about to take place. But the Lord gives them a little bit of insight. He gives them a little bit of information. Hey guys, go, go loose this colt. Go loose the colt. What, what are we supposed to say when we get What if somebody says, what are you doing? I don't want to be hung as a horse thief. And so they come and they, the Lord says, just tell them the Lord has need of it. So they come and there's a colt, the colt of a donkey. They're tied to a tree. And as he comes to that place, sure enough, the scripture tells us they came and they found where they, uh, <clears throat> where they were sent. They went their way, found it just like he had said. But as they were loosening the colt, the owner said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And they said to him, the Lord has need of him. And off he went. And he fulfilled 
right then, Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Here comes the Lord, God Almighty, in the flesh, riding on a donkey. Why? You see, the symbolism in the Scripture is this. If you were coming for war, you came on a white horse. You were coming to conquer. Revelation chapter 6, the first of the four horsemen, we see the Antichrist rising up and riding what? A white horse. What's he come to do? In his hands, he has symbols of peace. But he's riding a white horse. And what follows him? War, pestilence, and famine. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. But that's not how Jesus came. He didn't come riding a horse. How did he come? Riding a donkey. Why? Because then he was coming in peace. He was coming in peace. On a specific day that the Lord had made. The rabbis taught, if the people were prepared for Messiah, Messiah would return on a horse. And he would enter into Jerusalem. But if the people were not ready, he would come on a donkey. Here we see Jesus gathering up the donkey, coming together, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And it says in verse 35, Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, so he's gone to the top of the Mount of Olives. Now he's coming down the other side. He can see Jerusalem now. He can see Jerusalem from where he's at. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they've come over the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus on a donkey, and they begin to lay out their clothes before him. They begin to sing from Psalm 118 saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest they began to sing this song and so some of the pharisees called to him and said teacher rebuke your disciples but he answered and said i tell you if these would keep silent the stones would immediately cry out immediately people singing and declaring from psalm 118 The messianic psalm, in essence, they're singing, here is the Messiah. Here is the Messiah. Here is the Messiah. The Bible tells us they were waving palm branches and laying their clothes on the ground in front of the donkey. Now, you and I, maybe that doesn't mean anything to us, but 150 years earlier, during the 400 years of silence, there was a man named Judas Maccabeah. Judas Maccabee, He was involved in a revolt, a Jewish revolt against the the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes ruled in Jerusalem. He's the one we read about in history that went into the temple and, and spilled pig's blood everywhere, made the priests drink pig's blood. In fact, they came to one particular priest and they told him, hey, you're going to sacrifice a pig on this altar. And the priest said no. And they killed him. That priest had two sons. One of his two sons' name was Judas Maccabee. And he led a revolt that ultimately kicked Antiochus Epiphanes out of the land. 
and set the Jewish people free. And when Antiochus Epiphanes was riding into the city, after the battle had been won, the war was done, the people were set free, as he came riding in on a donkey, the people laid down their cloaks in front of him and waved palm branches. They'd been set free. In the chapter prior to this, Jesus said, Knowing that the people expected the kingdom to come now, he set his eyes toward Jerusalem. But the people were expecting the wrong thing, weren't they? What did the Scripture say? The Scripture said that the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. Now, every day, every time Passover, every morning and every evening, what occurred at the temple? Sacrifices, right? And what happened to the Lamb? The lamb was slain. His blood was sprinkled. Either they would enjoy the meat together and communion with the Lord, or it would all be burned up depending on what type of sacrifice it was. What happened to the lamb? The lamb always died. So when John stood there and said, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, what was he telling the people? He's going to die. What did Jesus tell his disciples? I'm going to die. What did he come to do for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life he would wash away the stain of sin for all time now as the people are proclaiming this Jesus knows what's in their heart he knows what they're excited about he knows that some of those people that are waving palm branches in four days are going to shout, crucify him. Four days from entering Jerusalem to being on the cross. So as he comes in, he's, he's entering in. Now the Pharisees, they say, tell your disciples to be quiet because they know what they're saying. Hey, Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. The son of David, the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid, the promised king. This is the one. And is, you don't think Rome's watching? Let me tell you guys, you sit in Jerusalem, right on the Temple Mount, where the temple was, right to the left of the temple was the Antonio Fortress, overlooking the Mount of Olives. Down the Mount of Olives comes this huge procession of a fellow sitting on a donkey and all these people waving palm branches and declaring him as their Messiah. Now, you don't think Rome noticed? You don't think they're ready? Hey, it's Passover time. Passover's four days away. They're used to this kind of stuff happening around Passover. So they're watching, they're listening. The Pharisees are saying, hey, tell them to be quiet. Tell them to be quiet. Every other day, guys, every other day, Jesus told people, shh, but not that day. Why? What was so important about that one day? Because Psalm 118 said, that's the day the Lord has made. And God always keeps his appointments all the time. Jesus said, if I told him to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. First opportunity for a rock concert in in the history of the world. (laughs) But nonetheless, Jesus didn't tell them to be silent. He didn't tell them to be quiet. Now in verse 41, it says, now as he drew near, so he's about halfway down the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is not a tall mountain. It's like a hill. He's about halfway down the Mount of Olives. Straight across from my side is the temple. The temple standing there in the the horizon before him. 
from where he's at, maybe a 20-minute walk from where he's at. And as he looks over, you can see the whole city. It says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, sometimes you and I, we read that, and we think, you know, Jesus coming down, sees a city, and like a tear comes down his face. But that's not what the, the Greek says. The Greek says he wailed. He cried hard, audibly, shaken, at his core. Why? Because at that moment, on that day, the day that the Lord had made, he hears the cries of the people welcoming him as king, and he sees the city, and he knows what's going to happen. I'm not talking about the crucifixion. I'm talking about he knows what's going to happen to those people. And he begins to weep for them. He begins to cry for them. Look what the Scripture says. He said in verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, what's it say? Your day. What's so special about this day? The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and they will level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you sang the song, this is the day that the Lord has made. But you didn't understand that this was the day. He's saying, I see your future. I see what's coming. I see these children standing here waving palm branches and seeing what their parents are going to die in about 38 years from that moment. That there was going to be a siege, the worst siege known in human history. The siege of Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D. Jesus saw it. But he gives us a clue. He says, the reason, the purpose, the problem is, you didn't know the day of your visitation. Well, hold your fingers here with me and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Do you know that roughly a third of the Scripture is prophecy? third of the Scripture is prophecy. God said, by the prophetic word, I will establish myself, God speaking, Himself as Almighty God. I'll tell you the end from the beginning. I'll tell you things no one else will be able to tell you. And I'll tell you exactingly so that you'll know the only person who could have told me this was God. So there was this character named Daniel. Now, the children of Israel were divided in a kingdom, north and south. Northern kingdom went to Assyria. Southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. A siege wall is set around them. In the book of Leviticus, God said, Listen, if you follow my precepts and you keep yourself separated from the world, if you step away from the old life and into the new life with me, then the land will never vomit you out. But listen, if you spend all your time trying to go back to the old ways, the old life, the old things, the land's going to vomit you out. And sure enough, the land vomited them out and they ended up in Babylon. 
in Babylon, there's this young man who loved the Lord named Daniel. And Daniel would seek the Lord. God, show me what's going on. Show me the things that are happening. Show me what's, what's going to come upon this world. And the Bible says, an angel came to Daniel and said, You know, Daniel, you are greatly beloved of God. And as Daniel sought the Lord in prayer, as Daniel sought the Lord with his whole heart, God gave him arguably one of the greatest prophecies in Scripture. Daniel chapter 9. So as we take a look at Daniel chapter 9, let's look. We'll back up and begin at the beginning of the prophecy. Verse 24. It says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Here's what's going to be accomplished in the prophecy. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up all vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this prophecy is going to deal with everything. It's going to take us from where we are to where we will be with Jesus Christ for eternity. And it says 70 weeks. 70 weeks. Shebeim. Shebeim. Seven. Seventy sevens. It's a hepstead. You and I, we... We know what is meant when I say decade, right? Decade is 10 years. The Shebeim, the sevens, the Hepstead, instead of decade, Hepstead, it is seven years. So 77-year periods of time are determined for the people. That's it. This is all prophecy. 77s are determined. And it's going to complete all of these areas. And in verse 25... He says, listen, know therefore and understand from the going forth of the command to restore and build, what's it say? Jerusalem, right? Until the Mashiach Nagid, until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So he says, listen, know. That from the time they tell you to go back out of Babylon and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah walks into your city is seven weeks, 49 years, and 62 weeks. So he lays this out for them. Well, you might think, well, yeah, but we can never really know when that happened. Oh, sure we can. March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes Longinus. He declared to the people that they could go and rebuild Jerusalem. There were four decrees in total. Three of them were to rebuild the temple. He didn't say rebuild the temple, right? He said from the call to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Only one dealt with Jerusalem. March 14th, 445 B.C. It's so exacting. It says first there will be seven... Right? Seven weeks and then 62 weeks. Why the division for the total of 69 weeks of years? Well, because it took him 49 years to rebuild this, the, the wall and the streets. Isn't that what he said? He says the street will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. It took 49 years to do that. And then you had left from that point 62. A total of, of 69 weeks of years or 400 in 83 years, from the command to rebuild Jerusalem 
until the Messiah would enter into the city and be declared as the Messiah. 483 years. Well, there's one more little trick to it. In fact, a guy named Sir Robert Anderson figured it out. He was a detective at Scotland Yard. And he began to look at this prophecy. And so he got together these these great minds in England. And he said, listen, this has all got to work out. How does this work? And he began to do all of these uh, equations. And he discovered something. Do you know that the Jewish calendar is what we call a lunar calendar? Do you know what our calendar is? A solar calendar. We have 365 days in a year. But in the Jewish calendar, the Babylonian calendar at the time, they had... 360 days. That's how they did. 12, 30-day months. Wouldn't that be nice? You wouldn't have to do that thing where you try to remember which ones have 31 and 28. I got the 28 one down, actually. But but the rest of them, they're a little bit more difficult, huh? But in their calendar, 360-day years. So you put 360-day years into 483 years, and you come up with 173,880 days. And so you pick up a calendar and you count from March 14th and you land on the 10th of Nisan, 32 AD. On our calendar, it's April 6th, 32 AD. 10th of Nisan was the day when the lambs would be brought into the city to be examined for four days. And at the end of those four days, the lamb would be slain. And on that day, while all these lambs, Josephus tells us 256,000 lambs were slain that Passover. One for every 10 people. How many people is that? About two and a half million. They come in as they're bringing in all those lambs. Here comes Jesus down the hill. This is the day that the Lord has made. April 6, 32 AD, the 10th of Nisan. Daniel foretold it a thousand years before it even was coming around. And he gave that to the people and he said, listen, know, know therefore and understand the Messiah is coming in 173,880 days. The rabbis understood that. They understood what the scripture was saying. But it goes on in verse 26. But after 62 weeks... Messiah will be karat, put to death, but not for himself. Who does he die for? You and me. Caiaphas prophesies that year. He says, it is expedient that one man die for the people. Yeah, you're right. Jesus Christ died for all of our sins. He came in on the 10th of Nisan, the day when the, when the lamb was inspected. For four days, the next four days, Jesus is going to be inspected and questioned. And ultimately, what will they declare? Pilate will stand up and say, I find no fault in him. What kind of lamb had to be sacrificed? A lamb without spot, without blemish, perfect. What was Pilate saying? There's nothing wrong with him. There's no sin. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's perfect. Good. He meets the qualifications. As the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Guys, this is that day. This is that day. This is that day that Daniel foretold. 
that Jesus would enter into the city. And he came. And not only that, Daniel said the exact day he would come and be proclaimed. So now you understand why Jesus kept saying, Shh, no, don't say anything. It's not the day yet. It's not the day yet. And then when it was the day and they told him to be quiet, what did he say? No. If he had to be quiet now, the rocks would cry out. The trees would clap their hands. All of creation is groaning for that day when they will be set free from the curse, looking forward to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which he came to begin first by preparing our lives that we might have our sins dealt with. And so, this is that day. The day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. And now listen to the rest of this. Verse 26 of Daniel 9. And the people of the prince who is to come, by the way, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. So he's saying the people from whom the Antichrist will arise will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it will be as a dispersion, flood. The Jewish people will be spread around the world. Do we know who the people were that did that? Sure we do. Titus Vespasian and the Roman army in 70 A.D. destroyed Jerusalem. So Daniel said the Antichrist is going to come forward or come forth out of a revived Roman Empire. Maybe a revived Europe. We'll see. Time will tell. I'm not looking for him. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I give a rip who the Antichrist is. The world can have him. I don't want him anyway. I don't want him. I want the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, all these things going on. And then he, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the many. The many is Israel for one week. Remember, what week is how long? Seven years. You know that period of time people talk about, that tribulation period? You remember how long it is? Seven years. Daniel's 70th week. And so there will be a treaty with the nation of Israel. In the middle of the week, he's going to break the treaty. And things are going to get really dicey the last three and a half years. That's what Daniel had to say. Did did the Jewish people at the time of Christ have that scripture? Yeah. Sure they did. They had to read it. They had to study it. Did they believe it? You see, sometimes our relationship with the Lord, it just becomes words on a page. And we forget the reality, the truth about what Jesus Christ is saying. Now go back to the Gospel of Luke. Remember what he said? For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children with you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. 38 years later, it occurred. Jesus spoke it. 38 years later, it happened. Specifically, he said they wouldn't leave one stone upon another. Well, the temple was filled with gold. Inside, outside, all around was beautiful. was beautiful. Josephus tells us that a Roman soldier accidentally caught fire to the temple. And as the temple burned, all that gold fell into the cracks of the stones of the building. Now, for a Roman soldier, you know what they get paid? What they find. 
And there's a bunch of gold in the cracks. How am I going to get to it? I'm going to turn the stones over. And they left not one stone upon another. You go to Israel with me when we go, and I'll take you to the Teropian Valley where today you can stand and look at those stones all in a pile. Just like Jesus said. All piled up still today. Thrown off the Temple Mount and left on the floor below. Just like he said. Folks, as we look at this, if God kept his appointment, if God keeps his word, if God fulfills his prophecy, what does that mean for you and me? Jesus, when he ascends, we'll talk about it a little bit next week, when Jesus ascends into the sky, what are the disciples doing? They're standing around looking up and thinking, wow, what did I just see? By the way, the word for ascending into heaven is harpazo. I don't know if you're familiar with that word, but it's also the word that they define as the rapture. Jesus was raptured into heaven. And then as they're looking up and they're seeing Jesus go, two angels stood beside him and said, why are you guys staring into the heavens? What are you doing here? Don't you know that Jesus is going to return the same way he went? So you get busy. Because Jesus Christ is coming soon. Is God going to keep that appointment? The Lord's going to keep his appointments. Look what happens. As he's weeping and crying, verse 45, it says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He comes into the temple. Guys, this is what was going on. There was what's called the court of the Gentiles. The only place within the temple that an unbeliever, a Gentile, could go to pray. And it was there that they had all the money changers in the temple. Because, you know, the temple didn't want your, your denarius with a picture of Caesar on it. They wanted temple money. So you had to trade your money in. Have you ever gone to another country and had to exchange money? You know that they don't give you whatever the rate is, right? Because then they wouldn't make any money. So they, they rip you off going in, and the U.S. rips you off coming back. That's how it works. So you, you only want to exchange as much money as you actually want to use in country because you're going to lose going both ways. Well, here they are doing that in the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are coming trying to pray, trying to understand who the Lord is. And there's all this chaos in the only place where they're allowed to come and pray. And the Bible says Jesus came and he made a cord of whips. And he drove the money changers out of there. He overturned their tables. And then he came to the doves that were in the cages that they were selling in the, in the lambs. And he told someone, hey, take these doves out of here. You know what that tells me? It tells me the difference between a loss of self-control and righteous indignation or God's anger. Jesus wasn't... Now, I don't know how you are, but when I'm flipping out, anything could break around me. <laughs> Especially a little cage with a dove in it. Man, can you imagine how far you could kick that cage? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let that... I'll set that dove free. I don't know if that counts, doing it that way. But Jesus, when he comes to them, the Scripture tells the other Gospels tell us, he just controlled himself, took care of them so the animals weren't hurt, and grabbed that whip and chased them folks out. 
Did anybody fight against him? What else does that tell us? Jesus apparently was a stud. (laughs) Right? I'm like, come on. If I go to the swap meet and I start building myself a whip of cords and start driving people out, it's not very long before somebody's going to say, I don't know who you are, brother, but we're going to tango. But what happened with Jesus? Nothing. Chased them all out. He said, this is my father's house. He prepares a house of God. Guys, on the day that Jesus came, he went into the temple and he overturned the tables and he prepared a place for people to be able to receive his truth. And he taught for the next four days. He taught. For you and I, we we are looking forward to that day. We're looking forward to that great day when Jesus Christ will return, when Jesus will call his church home. That last seven weeks is going to occur. But it's interesting because as we study the book of Revelation, you know what you find out? The church is not mentioned after chapter 5. Tribulation begins in chapter 6. The church is mentioned some 40-some times in the first three chapters. All of a sudden it's gone. Where to go? Well, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, God said to John, come up here. And John was taken from earth into heaven. Sounds like a picture to me. Nonetheless, God is going to call his church home. Irrefutably, he's going to call his church home. We're looking forward to that day. But what happens when we come to the Lord? We, do we hear John say to us? Do we hear when we gather together corporately in the church? Do we hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world? Are we willing to receive him into our lives? And if you do, that's the day the Lord has made for you. Jesus comes into your life. And what's he do as soon as he gets there? He's going to start overturning tables. Because you got a bunch of junk inside of you. So do I. And until, from this time until I see Jesus, he's going to be overturning tables. He's going to be saying, Jackie, this is my house. We need to get some of this junk out of here. We need to keep this focused on me. That it's about me. This is a day that the Lord has made. If God kept that promise, he'll keep this one as well. This day. Palm Sunday. Well, in chapter 20, look what happens. Or I'm sorry, we'll go to to, uh, verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him for four days. They kept coming to Jesus to hear him. Folks, it wasn't different people that shouted crucify him. It's these people. Four days to hear what Jesus had to say. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught in the temple and he preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and they spoke to him saying, tell us by whose authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? So they come to Jesus and said, who told you you could do all this? Cleanse the temple. Why are they saying that? Well, there's this fellow named Caiaphas. You remember that name, right? He has, a, he has a, a father in Annas. Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas and Annas. They, see, they had a business on the side. Do you know what it was? Money changing. Selling doves and lambs in the court of the Gentiles. 
Oh, they were the two powers behind the Sanhedrin. You think they were upset about Jesus wrecking into all their prophets that day? So they send these guys, ask him by what authority. So Jesus says, he answered and said, listen, I want to ask you something. You answer me, I'll answer you. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered and said, they didn't know where it was from. What a marvelous thing. Jesus says, you want to know by what authority I do these things? He says, well, what did you think of John the Baptist? If they say John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever born among women, that's what Jesus said of him, then they would have to say what John the Baptist said was true. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah. So, you want to know by what authority? What do you think of John? Oh, we don't, we don't know what to think of John. Well then, I don't know how to help you. Because your eyes are shut. You notice in this, in this as, they're, as they're reasoning in themselves, did they care what was true? No, what are the people going to think? Well, the people will think, they'll stone us, and if we say this, then Jesus owns us. So, we just don't know what to think. Did they just choose a side? Yeah. And what was their choice based on? What is this going to do for me? Selfishness. Last week we were talking about the great mark of God in our lives. What is it? Love. Is love selfish? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us not. Love is not selfish. Well, he goes on then and he says, well... Jesus said to them, neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But, he said, I'll tell you a story. He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went to a far country for a long time. Now, for the Jewish people, their minds right now are going, oh, we've heard this before. Where had they heard it before? Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet told them a parable similar to this. The vineyard was Israel. And the, the, the vineyard or the vine dresser, the, the master, was God. Now Jesus, be, do you think they know what he's saying? Oh, sure, they get it. They got the book of Isaiah. They've read this before. It says, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dresser beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So, again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him, and also cast him out. Folks, there's a progression happening. With each one, there's a little more violence. Each one a little more. First, they just beat him. Then they beat him and treat him shamefully. Then he's wounded. That word for wounded means he has a permanent injury. He's made lame from the beating that he receives. What is Jesus saying? What is he saying? Well, folks, Isaiah, if Isaiah said the vineyard is Israel and the master is the Lord, then who are his servants? Prophets. And each prophet that was sent to the people, what did they do to him? They beat him. They treated him shamefully. They wounded him. 
Isaiah, they cut in two with a wooden saw. Doesn't sound very good to me. Jeremiah, they threw him down in a miry dungeon with a mud so soft and thick he sinks up to his neck. Amos, they throw out of the city over and over and over again. Elijah, they cast him out, didn't want him as a part of their people, yet God worked mightily through him, didn't he? Over and over again, the Lord sends people. He sends them. He sends them. And what did they do to him? They beat him. They killed him. They cast him out. The story goes on. Jesus says, well, then the owner of the vineyard said, what will I do? I know. I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. Finally, God sent his son. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him outside of the vineyard. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside of the city. They cast him outside of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? This is a day that the Lord has made. Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're looking to kill him. They want to wipe him out. They want to destroy him. They care whether it's true. They don't care whether it's true. They care whether it fits in Scripture. They don't care whether it fits in Scripture. What's it all about? How does this affect me? I'm wealthy right now. We need to get rid of this guy. Get rid of this Jesus guy. Who cares what's truth? What did, what did Pilate say? Chaos veritas. What's the truth? Well, the whole world's declaring the same thing, aren't they? What's truth? What's truth? Truth's relative. Truth's whatever you say it is. What's the Bible say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, my word is truth. Now you are made clean by the word that I have spoken to you. Here's the truth. They didn't care about that. They just want to cut him off. So they take him outside the city. Now, has anything happened yet? No, we're probably on the second day of four days that Jesus is being grilled by the, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's still a couple of days away from the cross. Yet he tells them, you're going to take this, this son of the master of the vineyard outside the city and you're going to crucify him. But what's the master going to do? Well, he goes on. Jesus said, he will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Folks, what happened? He destroyed the vineyard and he gave it to others. From 70 AD to 1948, there was no nation of Israel. It was gone. But do you know in Ezekiel chapter 38, God made a promise? He said, Ezekiel, come to the valley of dry bones. Show me what you see. And Ezekiel said, I see a bunch of dead bodies. And the gods, God said, watch this. And Ezekiel said, he saw sinew attached bone to bone, muscle, skin, and all those dead bones were made to live. In 1948, the prime minister of Israel said, today Ezekiel 38 is fulfilled in your hearing as Israel is a nation again. We know they were going to come back. God said they were. Did they come back? Yep. Did God show up on the day he said he would show up? 
Yeah. Did he pay for the sins of the world himself when we couldn't pay the debt that was before us? Sure he did. Did he fulfill all of those things? Did he accomplish all of that? Yeah. And here Jesus says yet again, listen, this is what's going to happen. Now look what the Pharisees say. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. No, it's never going to happen. God's not going to take Israel away from Israel. Read the history book. 38 years after Jesus said this, it's going to take place. And he looked at them and he said, Then what does this mean which is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them into powder. The story is told that while Solomon was building the temple, they cut this stone, this strangely shaped stone, and they sent it ahead. It was ready for later on in the building process. And, and when the builders got it, they looked at it and said, what are we supposed to do with this? So they kicked it off the side of the hill. And it rolled down into the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Now, when they got to the point where they were ready to set the, the cornerstone, when they were ready to make that set, they called to the quarry and said, hey, where's that cornerstone? We sent it up years ago. You did? Yeah, where is it? So they looked. It was in the bottom of the Kidron Valley covered with weeds. The Bible says that Jesus is that cornerstone. And the first time he came to his people, what happened? He was rejected. But the next time he comes, he's going to set his people free. The next time he comes, the Bible says, all Israel will be saved. God's going to do a marvelous an incredible work. He is the chief of the corner. Now, for a long time, I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. Cornerstone, square, you send me a square stone, I'm going to put it wherever I want to put it. Why they kick it down the hill? Then I went to Israel. And when I was in Israel, I was, had this Jewish guide, and we were walking and talking. And I, you know, I don't know if this is confirmed, but it sure makes sense to me. This is what the Jewish guide told me. He said, you know, the Bible talks about the the chief cornerstone. I says, yeah. He says, well, there it is. And I looked up and I said, that's the the chief cornerstone. He says, yeah, that's what we call the cornerstone. You know what we call it? A keystone. The center stone in the middle of the arch that holds up everything else. Everything else is based on that keystone. In the archway, it's cut at an angle on both sides. And it sets in there. And the rest of the building, the roof, all held up by that stone. And that made sense to me. Why they wouldn't just set it somewhere else in the building. They'd look at it and say, what's this? But listen, as we close today, as we're thinking about these things, now, wait, wait, think back. We were just talking about Daniel. Go back to Daniel for a minute. Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar. He knows Nebuchadnezzar's troubled. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I know you have a problem, and I'm going to tell you what your problem is. You had a dream last night. Let me tell you what your dream was. You dreamed about these, these creatures, a, a, a head of gold, a chest of silver, a, a legs of bronze, and, and feet of iron and clay. And he says, and then as you watch this massive structure, you saw a stone not cut out by hands from the heavens strike that statue and destroy it all. Daniel said that statue is all the kingdoms of the world 
Who's the stone? Jesus. The stone is Jesus. Folks, this is that day. We look on our calendars and we see Palm Sunday and, and we think of that time when they, when they waved those palm fronds in front of the Lord. But, but this is that day that Daniel talked of. This is that day when the chief cornerstone was rejected and pushed off the hill. And if this occurred, can we believe that Jesus is coming again? Peter said, God is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long suffering, desiring that no one would perish. So he waits. How long has he waited? Roughly 2,000 years. How long is that to God? Peter said a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. So for God, he's only been gone two days. He showed up on the day Daniel said he would. But he doesn't tell us a day. Why? Because he told the people, this is the day the Lord has made. 173,880 days from this point. Be ready. Were the people ready? No. So what does he tell us? No man knows the day or the hour. No man knows when he's coming. So what's he saying? Be ready every day. Are you ready today? Are you ready? Let's be ready. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. We come before you right now, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the truth of your word, the incredible prophecies that you lay out for us, uh, understanding that we can receive if we're willing to say that this book is not just a book, but that, that you declared it as truth, absolute truth. Lord God, as we look at it and we see that you fulfill your promises, we see, God, that that you fulfilled your promise. You told the nation of Israel what would occur when they rejected you, and it occurred. But you never gave up on them. And you never give up on us. All day long, you reach out your hands to a, a disobedient and obstinate people. The point is, all day long, you reach out your hands so that anyone who would reach up and take your hand, who would declare with you, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day. Hosanna. Save now. We reach out and call upon your name this morning, Lord God, and we pray, Father, that you would meet us in this place. May we understand as we, as we read the scriptures and about the date that was given to the children of Israel, the date that you kept, but that they didn't believe. May we understand why you tell us then every day is that day. Live every day that way. Expect me. Expect me. Lord God, may we live our life looking for your return. For Paul would tell us in the book of Thessalonians that we will receive a crown. The crown of joy for all those who loved your appearing. And I can't wait. I can't wait for that day, Lord. So God, when we sing songs, 
when we cry out your name and we say, blessed is the day that the Lord has made. Let us not despise that day. For that day will come, even as it came for them. And you will fulfill your promise to us. For you declare to us, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my Father's house, there are many mansions. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, prepare a place for you. I will come again to get you and bring you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. So God, let not our hearts be troubled. Let us receive the word with joy. Let us watch always and pray for that glorious day. And may we remember it on this day, this day when you fulfilled your promise to the nation of Israel. May we look forward to our day, that day when you will appear, that you will call your church in that forever. There'll never again be a question, is God real? Where's God at? Where's God at when I'm hurt? Where's God at? Why is this things happening in my life? No questions, because we'll be with you forever. And the Bible says there will be no more tears, nor sorrow, nor pain nor death, there will never again be another goodbye. Man, for this is the day. Father, we thank you for your promise. And we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.